All right, sorry to be so serious about that baby dedication. Uh, Usually we have a lot more fun than that. Open your Bible this morning to the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 5. If you are new or visiting Calvary Chapel of Hanford, we are studying through the Gospel of Luke chapter by chapter, verse by verse, which is our habit. And we find ourselves in chapter 5, verse 17. We're going to read down into verse 26. And that will be our lesson this morning. So I'll give you a couple more seconds to find your way. After a while, if you can't find it, it becomes embarrassing, so you should just quit. Okay. I'm just saying what we're all thinking, you know. (laughs) This is why I always tell you what we're studying ahead of time, so sometime during the week you can use your table of contents and find the text. Are you done now? Is everyone done? All right. Now, it happened on a certain day as Jesus was teaching, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. When they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus." When he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins... He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we want to see amazing things today in this text, things that will speak to our hearts And that will meet us in our need, whether our need this morning is emotional or physical or spiritual, whether we're in your kingdom as your children or outside of it, Lord, as uh, those that are here to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that you are present here with the power to heal uh, spiritually and physically if you so desire. And so we trust you to do all the good work that is in your heart to do. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. There was more than one paralytic in the room with Jesus. The Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come to hear Jesus were also severely paralyzed. For one thing, they never moved a muscle to help bring the paralytic to Jesus. For another, their heart muscle was so hardened that they were upset Jesus had forgiven the sins of the paralytic. Outwardly and physically, they seemed fine and in good health, but inwardly and spiritually, they suffered from the same malady as the paralytic. 
Everyone in the room, with the exception of Jesus, suffered from it. They were all born with inherited sin, born with what we call a sin nature. Then throughout their lives, they had all committed individual acts of sin. Sin is sometimes called in Scripture by the names of diseases in order to illustrate its awfulness. For example, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 38, sin is referred to as, quote, the plague of your heart. Ralph Robinson is quoted as saying, There is not any sickness of the body, but there is some distemper of the soul that might be paralleled with it and bear the name of it. The story in Luke is intended to illustrate that there is a greater palsy that needs healing, the spiritual palsy of sin. There is only one cure. You need to have your sins forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were right about one thing. God alone has the power to forgive your sins. Jesus was and He is God. He was present then and He is present now with the power to forgive you and heal your spiritual palsy. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, you are the friend of the spiritual paralytics whose sins need forgiving. And number two, you are the former spiritual paralytic whose sins were forgiven. Let's take a look first in verses 17 through 20 where we'll see that you are the friend of the spiritual paralytics whose sins need forgiving. The physical condition of the paralytic was a picture of the true spiritual condition of the human race. We are all paralyzed by sin. He will become a dramatic visual aid for Jesus to show his authority to forgive sin. And so let's read verse 17 again. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was present to heal them. The word for Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word that means to divide or to separate. The Pharisees probably developed after Ezra, the Old Testament priest, who taught the Jews the law of Moses and called upon the people to live separated lives from the surrounding nations. The teachers of the law were also called scribes. They're called that in just a few verses. As I understand them, they were teachers among the Pharisees, sort of maybe a super Pharisee. As a footnote, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that there were approximately 6,000 Pharisees uh, in the time of Jesus. Now, the Pharisees had made a good start. They were solid under Ezra, but their movement soon became legalistic. They developed an elaborate system of interpreting God's law, a strict set of practices, so that you knew what to do at all times in order to please God. But these rules and regulations, these rites and rituals, became only a source of outward self-righteousness. They did nothing to affect the heart. In fact, they had the effect of making you think that you were righteous by keeping these outward rules. And they had the effect of putting burdens on the common people, and then they were not able to help them bear them. You know, it's easy to start well in the Christian life and to be set free from your sins and set apart to live for the Lord, Uh, but it can be difficult to have a living, vital, personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ Uh, because we, we are a kind of people that love to be told what to do. As independent as you think you are, 
There's a part of you that wants to be told exactly what to do so that you know that you are living up to God's uh, will for your life. There's that mysterious area of our love for Jesus and his love for ours that is kind of the romance of our redemption that we find difficult, and we would rather settle sometimes for the rules. Lord, just give me the rules. Tell me the five things or the ten things or the twelve things that I have to do. And Jesus comes along and he says, well, how about you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? I was hoping for something more concrete. And it's difficult for us to just live in this atmosphere of love. It shouldn't be. We should be set free by it to simply just react and act towards people the way the Lord would love them and, and, and all. But we, we fall into this legalism and these legalistic habits. Christians do it. Whole churches do it. And then we believe that we are righteous because of what we're doing. And so the Pharisees made a good start, and they even appeared to be spiritual. Even at this time, the common people respected them and saw them as the spiritual giants. Uh, but we know, and Jesus knew, that their hearts were far from them, from him, rather. In the context of our story, as we're developing this illustration, they were seen as the spiritually healthy Jews. If, if you were to ask somebody that day if they were having like a, you know, if Fox News was there and they were doing an interview, they would say, now, who are the spiritually healthy people here? A lot of people have crowded in for healing, and they would say, well, the Pharisees and the scribes there, those guys are spiritually healthy. They're the number one head honchos here uh, just checking Jesus out. And so they undoubtedly had come to see if Jesus had the power to perform physical healings as had been reported. He did but only to represent that he had the authority to completely heal a person by forgiving their sins and giving them eternal life. While these guys were in the front row wondering about Jesus' ability to heal, the power of the Lord, it says, was present to heal them. They were in worse condition than the paralytic because they didn't suspect there was anything wrong with them. In verse 31 of this same chapter, Jesus will tell another group of Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. It was in response to their complaint that Jesus was spending a lot of time with sinners and not so much time with these super saints. And he says, well, those who know that are sick are the ones that I've come to minister to. And it's implied, of course, that the Pharisees were just as sick, maybe sicker, because they thought they were well. The whole human race is sick with sin. The scribes and Pharisees appeared spiritually healthy on the outside, but inside they were filled with sin. Jesus, in one of the great analogies of his, uh, that he used, he would one time say that the Pharisees were like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, all kept and polished and, you know, uh, whitewashed, but inside, full of dead man's rotting bones. And so that's what it meant to be a Pharisee uh, from heaven's perspective. Rather than go around diagnosing others or sitting in judgment over Jesus, they needed treatment. And so in verse 18, then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. This would be an extreme case. He could do nothing for himself. In all likelihood, the paralytic could not even speak. He lay around all day on his bed, drooling and having caregivers help him with all of his bodily functions. 
He becomes a contrast to these religious leaders. First of all, they see nothing wrong with or within themselves. Seated close to Jesus, they do not understand he was present with the power to heal them. The paralytic has everything wrong with and within himself. Confined to his bed, far from Jesus, he understood the Lord was present with the power to heal him. Or at least his friends did. They carried him to the house where Jesus was teaching. And by the way, it was probably Peter's house, the house in Capernaum that Jesus used as his base of operations. Verse 19, when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. The crowd would not clear a path for them to get in to see the Lord. Now, I don't want to make a big deal about this, but Christians can be really rude sometimes. Christian crowds can be the rudest crowds ever, and it shouldn't be that way. I remember as a young, brand-new Christian, I went down to Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, and the hot-happening Christian band at that time was the Sweet Comfort Band. Anybody even remember the Sweet Comfort Band? God bless you. They were the audio adrenaline or the newsboys of their day. You know, I mean, they were happening. And uh, so we waited outside, and I, Pam and I and uh, another couple, we were maybe as far as I am from the back doors of the sanctuary to the door of, of the chapel, and there were several lines all the way around, and, but we thought, you know, it seats 3,000, 2,500 people. We certainly are going to get in. They opened all the doors. In about 10 minutes' time, the sanctuary filled up in a mad rush of people and we never moved a muscle. We were never able to make any progress whatsoever, and we couldn't get in. Now, I wasn't there for a healing, and, and you know, it didn't, I wasn't being carried on a bed like a paralytic and all that, uh, but I thought, what a rude bunch of people. I could go to a ball game and be treated this way. You know, I don't have to go to church, and, and Christians just have a tendency to be rude, and so don't be, don't be rude, uh, you know, and, and be aware of that, and, uh, you know, This is a sad commentary in that this guy was arguably the person most worse off that day. I think the story is structured from a literary point of view to show you contrasts, and this is as bad as it gets. Common decency dictates that you defer to those who have the greater need. This is why, hopefully, men still get up and let women sit down. Or, you know, when the place fills up, that if somebody comes in that, that is more infirm than you are, you give them the better seat. Now, honestly, somebody should have asked the Pharisees and teachers of the law to give up their chief seats to make way for the paralytic. They're just sitting in the front, probably with little notepads, you know, thinking about, okay, I'm going to have to check out Isaiah after that because of his reference there, you know, and this son of man, let's check that in Daniel 9, you know, and and they're just there to check out the Lord. They're not seeking any healing. In fact, as you go through the scripture, you get the impression that they're always trying to accuse him, and and so they're, they're not being helpful at all. Maybe I'm reading into this as well, but I sometimes think we don't see more of the Lord's power because we're not sensitive to our surroundings. We, we should be more aware of what's happening around us and what's going on with people. Now, I'm, I can say that because I'm really bad at this. I'm kind of dull when it comes to knowing what's going on. Luckily, I married well, and Pam can always take me aside and say, Gene, honey, this is what they're saying. Oh, okay, now I can comment about that. You know, 
Really? Okay. And, and so I'm, I, and I've, I've tried over the years to learn to be a little bit more sensitive. So far it's not working, but, but I'm, I'm working on it. But I, I do think sometimes that, that we're so much in a rush or we're so focused in on what's happening uh, or what we think we're going to do or even what the Lord wants us to do that we don't pause and just look around at what's happening. Jesus, fantastic example of this, going through crowds and all of a sudden he'll say, who touched me? And the disciples are, Lord, what is the matter? What have you been smoking? Everybody's touching you. Well, that's what I would have said. I I think these guys had a sense of humor. You're probably thinking that's blasphemous, but you know, Jesus was a fun guy. But anyway, you know, Lord, everybody said, you know, somebody in particular touched me. And it was the woman with the issue of blood, and he paused to to minister to her. And, And there are many times that people are pressing in a sense, maybe not even in a crowd, but pressing through to touch the Lord. And, and you're that person that is going to represent Jesus Christ to them, and so we need to be sensitive to what might be happening around us, and it will set up more ministry opportunities. The crowd sets up the demolition of Peter's roof. Now, this is one of my favorite scenes in the Scripture. The houses in Capernaum had flat earthen roofs with tiles laid over support rafters, then packed with mud. Since roofs served as patios, most houses had an outdoor stairway that would lead up to the roof. At least four men carried the paralytic up these outside stairs to the rooftop patio, and they carefully calculated just where Jesus was seated below them and then began removing the roof. Now, really think about this. This is a big undertaking. First of all, Jesus is in the house thronged with people when suddenly debris starts falling into the house from the roof until a man is let down by four ropes tied to the corners of the mattress right in front of the Lord. It's an usher's worst nightmare. (laughs) Okay, so these guys arrive, and they can't get through. And so one of them has the idea to go on the roof and tear up the roof and lower the guy down. And the other guys go along with it, and they would have had to figure out exactly where Jesus was. And so, you know, this is a bigger undertaking than you think. Uh, And so they somehow, maybe with their laser leveler or something like that, you know, they figure out, and they start tearing up. And this would have taken some time. Uh, This wasn't a skylight uh, or a chimney. I mean, they tore up the roof. And I'm sure Peter was a little concerned about what might be happening out there. I think there were five guys, four up on the roof and one at the bottom of the stairs, the biggest guy, to keep everybody else from going up there and say, hey, nothing's happening here. Everything's under control. We're tearing up the roof so we can let down our friend. I mean, this is pretty intense. And so Jesus, he's got to be smiling. Yes, it's an interruption of his teaching, but we don't see Jesus saying, "Uh, uh, Peter, Get up on the roof and get those guys out of there. You know, I'm right in the middle of a great analogy here. I'm just about to reveal that this is me and, you know, Zechariah 14 or something like that. You know, and Jesus, I sure, is just having the time of his life. And so the roof breaks open and this guy comes down. And, you know, they didn't have tackle with them. Uh, I don't even know if they had, you know, they probably grabbed some rope and I uneven, and I think the guy probably even fell the last couple of feet, you know, and stuff, just bam, right on the ground. I mean, this, this kind of stuff happens. I was up at the hospital uh, in uh, uh, one of the hospitals in Fresno uh, one night, 
uh, visiting somebody who was sick and, and, uh, or hurt, actually. And we were in there in the middle of the night, and the ambulance crew come in, and they, you know, there's a constant stream of people. And, and so this one crew, they brought this guy in, and this guy was just wasted on meth or, you know, he's just out of his mind on drugs, and he's on their gurney. And they want to transfer him from their gurney to a, a bed that's against the wall. And so they, they're getting ready to just kind of gently lift him over, and they're doing a one, two, and on three, he decides to help them by jumping, and he just smashes right into the wall. I mean, just bam, you know, and falls back, and uh, they just leave, you know, and stuff, because I guess this is just a normal thing, you know? So these are, if you hang around situations like this, they are not sterile and antiseptic. I mean, there's dirt now all over the floor. The guy's bed has stuff on it. Tiles are probably falling in after him, and they just plop him down in front of Jesus, thinking, well, he's paralyzed anyway, so, you know, what, what could it hurt? Come on. Verse 20 says, when he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, what everyone else saw was rude, interruptive behavior. They saw men vandalizing the roof. Jesus saw their faith. Certainly, he saw faith in their hearts, but even you and I can see their faith by their actions. At that moment, everyone in that room ought to have been embarrassed and ashamed that they had blocked the way to Jesus for the paralytic, chief among them the religious leaders. We would do well to constantly ask ourselves, are we doing anything to block people from coming to Jesus? Now, obviously, I don't think we are or else we'd change our habits or practices, but it's something we want to be sensitive to. Churches, collections of people, people... You know, the world would be a great place if it wasn't for the people. I mean, you know, it, it's hard to get along with people and, and uh, two people, three opinions, you know, that kind of a thing. And you're always coming up with how are we going to do that and what's the rule here and what's the regulation. And, and over time, churches develop elaborate strategies that end up keeping people away whether it's as simple as a dress code that is initially intended to be a blessing to people and to help them in their modesty and, and to, you know, as a community of people, worship the Lord or whatever. Uh, at, at some point, you, you can develop that into a legalistic system so that a person comes and, and really can't come in to worship the Lord because of some rule or regulation that you've established. And so we want to always be cautious and careful about that. We don't want to ever block anybody from coming to the Lord. Instead, we will actually, we want to bring people to the Lord, not just that we're not blocking them. We want to be able to freely and wonderfully and lovingly bring them in. Now, here was a man in the greatest physical need possible, a paralytic, unable to move, undoubtedly unable to speak. All of his bodily processes had to be cared for by others. Yet Jesus spoke to his deeper need, the spiritual healing that can only come by having your sins forgiven. What sins can a paralyzed man commit anyway? What speaks of your sin nature that pervades every part of your life? Whether or not this man was born a paralytic, he was definitely born a spiritual paralytic. He was born dead in trespasses and sins, the Bible says, his heart plagued by inherited sin. How could Jesus forgive his sins? In order to forgive his sins, God sent his one and only son into the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him 
should not perish but have everlasting life. In order to give us the grace of forgiveness, the Son of God became the Lamb of God. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He shed his blood on Calvary. And then in Revelation, we read of him as the Lamb who was slain, who is worthy to receive power and authority. Jesus has the authority to forgive men's sins. The crowd surrounding him or his friends up on the roof or the paralytic himself may have been wanting to hear Jesus say, man, your paralysis is gone. But when the Lord said to him, your sins are forgiven, I don't know what other people thought, but spiritual life would have so filled his heart as to render his paralysis meaningless. Now, maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but think about, think about your own conversion to Christ. I've heard it said before, and I've probably said it myself, you know, that here you're the paralytic and you're wanting to be healed and then Jesus forgives your sins and you're disappointed. Oh, no, 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 that's not it at all because there is a spiritual life that comes into the heart and soul of a person that renders any other healing meaningless. Whatever your situation is, whatever your circumstances, you, it doesn't really matter anymore because you have been touched by Jesus Christ. give you an example. A few years ago, I was watching a a Christian video about AIDS. Those being interviewed were dying of AIDS, but they had become Christians. I'll never forget the words of one of those terminal individuals. He said he would rather have AIDS and know Jesus Christ than not have AIDS but not know Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of his sins had rendered his physical condition and his impending death meaningless because he was headed for heaven. Now, this man was carried along to Jesus when he could do nothing for himself. Faith carries us along into the presence of the Lord when we can do nothing for ourselves as spiritual paralytics. God, though, uses means for faith to carry us to the Lord. His Word, anointed by His Spirit, is what carries us. Faith comes by hearing, the Bible says, and hearing by the Word of God. And so it's God's Spirit-anointed Word coming to you, especially by friends who recognize your helpless condition. Most of us in this room who are Christians have the testimony that some Christian friend or family member shared Jesus Christ with us, brought the Word of God to us, brought us to Jesus when we were spiritually paralyzed. And that's the way that it always is. You are the friend of some spiritual paralytic All you have to do, really, is to remember that you, too, were once in that condition. And so in verses 21 through 26, you are the former spiritual paralytic whose sins were forgiven. The room was filled with folks who needed to have their sins forgiven, including the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Rather than exercising faith, they found fault. Verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they may have been simply musing in their hearts, or they might have been muttering among themselves in a way that Jesus couldn't really hear, but they all came immediately to the same theological conclusion. Since only God can forgive sins, this was blasphemy. Blasphemy, by the way, is claiming either to be God or to do what only God can do. Verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? God the Father gave Jesus a word of knowledge to know what they were musing and muttering. He busted them on the spot and asked his probing question. 
It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because it can't really be verified. Rise up and walk is harder to say because it either happens or it doesn't. Verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Jesus called himself Son of Man for the first time. It was a phrase familiar to the Jews, especially the scribes of the Pharisees, who spent time researching the Scriptures. The prophet Daniel used the phrase, for example, to describe the promised Messiah. More than just claiming to be both God and the Messiah, Jesus was challenging these students of Scripture. If the Messiah was one who had power to heal, and if Jesus was performing these healings that only the Messiah could do, well, then you do the math. He must be the Messiah that they were awaiting. The other thing that's going on here that I like, Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, God in human flesh, is really saying what I'm doing is scriptural. He was not afraid to appeal to the Scripture as a source of authority. Now, I only mention this because so often people have really way out things that they experience. And because they've really experienced it, it's a real thing that happened, they believe it's from God. Well, you can experience a lot of really weird things and them not be from God. I have a whole mind, part of this part of my mind right here, dedicated to the drug experiences that I had. I'll tell you about it sometimes. It's amazing that I'm sane. But uh, you can experience, and it doesn't have to be drugs. It can be a religious experience in a false religion. And so we have to always come back to the Word of God. Even Jesus was willing to do that and say, look, guys, go to the Scripture. This is what the Scripture says your Messiah will do. I'm only fulfilling the Scripture. And so it's important that we understand that. Now, the Pharisees and scribes had a saying. It goes like this. A sick man does not recover from his sickness until all his sins are forgiven him. Not true, by the way, but since it was what they believed, God was willing to meet them on their level. And so immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. There's a sub-theme in these verses regarding faith and works. We've seen that the paralytic's friends had a faith that showed itself in their works. Now the formerly paralyzed man shows his faith by his works. He picks up his mat as ordered, goes home as ordered. Faith that reveals itself in obedient works glorifies God. And by the way, I want you to get this in your mind. I, I think sometimes we have the impression that because he had been paralyzed his whole life that he had to get up slowly and stretch out and, and just get used to this idea and stuff. Now, he may have gotten up quickly and, you know, and fallen down, some people say, but I don't think so. I think Jesus healed him, and he was just able to do what he had never been able to do before without even having to learn how to do it. Jesus said, get up and take up your bed and walk, and he did it just like that. And, and so, uh, instantaneous, miraculous healing. When someone glorifies God, it can be contagious. Verse 26 says, they were all amazed. They glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, man, have we seen strange things today. If you are a Christian, you are a former spiritual paralytic whose sins have been forgiven. When your faith in God reveals itself through obedience, when your faith works, you glorify God and it becomes a challenge to others to do the same. Now, the people concluded, we have seen strange things today. The word for strange is where we get our English word, 
paradox. To us, a paradox is a contradiction. That's one of its definitions. But the word in our text originally meant beyond expectation. We have seen things beyond our expectation today is what they meant. We know God still has the power to heal. We rightly, biblically, pray for Him to do so. If He doesn't, we sometimes think of it as a paradox in the sense that it is a contradiction. It's contrary to what we desire God to do. And we're wondering and asking why and and we're discouraged and depressed. And some people even fall away from the Lord because He is... Uh, it seems so paradoxical to them that He doesn't answer their prayers in the way that they desired. The truth is, if God doesn't heal, it's not a contradiction. It is beyond the expectation. The people there that day expected Jesus to heal. That's why they came. Or to see if He could. That's why they came. When He forgave the sins of the paralytic, it was something beyond what they expected. It was something better than the healing. Now, he backed it up. He verified it with the healing, but that was all secondary. God is never going to do something less than we've asked, but beyond what we've asked. And what he does is provide the grace that is sufficient to endure the sickness, if necessary, in a way that glorifies God. God's deeper spiritual work is a work wonderfully beyond our expectation. I've said before, and I've tried to say it respectfully in these studies, It is an easy thing for God to heal you physically, but it is not always the best thing. The best thing is for Him to do a deeper, more permanent work in your heart, in your character, in your witness. Rather than finding fault when a physical healing is withheld, follow God by faith, and the glory you bring to God will become contagious. Let's pray together. Father, we do appreciate these words. These last words are a little bit hard, Lord, to hear because we, on a, on a very childlike level, we desire to be healed. We think it would be better. Or even not for ourselves, for our friends and our family or others that we hear of. We think it would be better. And though it would be good, Lord, and though you have the power to do it, do something beyond our expectation. And let us understand that there is no contradiction in your love for us but that you do something more and further and better and greater. And may we have the faith to believe that and to walk in that truth. Lord, I thank you so much for these words. And I pray that those, Lord, uh, among us who are Christians, those that have been set free from our paralysis, Lord, would become contagious as we glorify you. And Lord, if there are those here that don't know your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, they've been brought here by a friend or a family member. May they know that their sins can be forgiven. May they come to you, Lord, as we close our service. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, some of our deacons are going to be at the front of the church. And um, come forward and pray with them. Say, look, I'm, I'm not a Christian I need to get my life together. I need to give my life to Jesus Christ. And they'll be happy to pray with you and share with you what it means to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian and you want prayer, they'd love to pray for you and to make a point of contact and to ask God to be real, more real in your heart than he's ever been before. 
Uh, and so don't leave if there's something tugging on your heart right now. Obey that. You know, these four guys or five guys, however many guys brought this paralytic to Jesus, they had to obey that move of the Spirit on their heart that said, hey, get up and bring him to the Lord. Maybe they had better things to do. Maybe lunch was about ready, you know, those kinds of things. But they said, no, we're going to come to the Lord. We're going to go to where the Lord is. And so if you're here this morning and you need prayer and you know it, come forward. Let the guys pray for you. Wait on them, uh, you know, if there's a lot of people, and just let the Lord minister to you. Come to the 24 hours of prayer. It'll be a sweet time. God can touch the lives of those that you love, and He can touch your life through the prayer time. Stay for five minutes, stay for five hours, uh, but join us. May God bless and keep you in Jesus' name. Amen.